Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi. Hello. Welcome to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I'm one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I'm your other host, Emily Beijing. As we've discussed ad nauseum on this show, the early 2000s was not an amazing time to come of age as a young woman, which is why it's so important to give these two important films that could have just been written off as chick flicks their due and also... A criterion release, please. Yes, that's right. As another testament to the passage of time, the summer cinematic masterpieces of Legally Blonde and Princess Diaries turn 20 this year. So next year we can take them out for a drink. But that is what we are going to be covering today. I didn't realize that they had kind of come out so close together. They're like a week apart in July. A week apart in July. And in fact, Princess Diaries gets shoved into August because, you know, Disney thought this was like not going to be a great release. And so they tried to bury it in August where a lot of movies get buried. Yes, everybody knows the notorious dumping grounds of like January, February and like August, early September when you can kind of get away with your lesser releases for the year. (laughs) But what was the last time you watched either of these movies? Oh, man. Um, I watched Princess Diaries probably a year ago because it's a great, like, feel good. Um, And same, Legally Blonde, it's been probably two years. But actually, I saw it was on Netflix recently, so I'll probably Mm -hmm. rewatch it at one point in the near future. I just, every year or so, I'd say I watch these two because they're fun. um, They make me happy. And honestly, for, like... 2001 standards of like movies about women like you know they have their tropes but ultimately are really lovely films that have aged fairly well in a sea of two other 2001 films that did not how about you i actually just happened to rewatch legally blonde like a couple of weeks ago when it first came back onto netflix um because it just was on the new releases page and mary and i were trying to find something to watch and we realized we hadn't seen it in a really long time and our last memory of legally blonde was seeing the second one on 
uh, July 4th and it being so terrible and oh, how disappointed we were after we had seen it. But we rewatched it um, as well as White Chicks, which was also a very an interesting contrast to be watching these two comedies back to back. But I was really surprised by how well it held up. I don't know what I was expecting. I didn't see the musical, but I do know that they sort of like change it to be a little bit more of like a, a rom com ending versus like the kind of um, a self-empowered ending that we do get in the movie. But I, I forgot how how funny it really was and how popular that movie made the tangerine clamshell laptop that she yes. has. Yeah, I feel like between that and like, I think Mandy Moore had in the Candy music video, another colorful iMac. And like, that oh, yeah, was, she had the desktop, I think. And it matched her, her little beetle, the bright green <laughs> mm-hmm. beetle that she drove. Great spawn yep. con right there. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of like what I told you forget. today, I <laughs> like I told you today, I don't think I've rewatched The Princess Diaries since I've moved to the Bay Area. So it was, I, it had been a really, really long time. But like you said, it is, it's like a warm hug. It is such a feel good movie, but also genuinely funny because as I kept texting you, oh my God, Anne Hathaway is so good in this. She's like, I had kind of forgotten. Great. She is great. Sandra O, oh, scene stealer. Oh my God, I know. Gupta. I mean, that they're like great. Heather Matarazzo, lots of fun. Even Mandy Moore, like a little one dimensional, but plays a good bully. Like she just, she plays it well for her like first acting, acting gig ever. Everyone just does a great job. And the fact that this was a fun set shows. I would also say that this is like, version one of what will ultimately be Mandy Moore's character in Saved. I feel like yes. that's the fully realized version is, of this character. Is, for this sure. is, yeah. She like graduates from Princess Diaries and does a great job there. Well, but yeah. I, um, do you have a personal connection to either of these movies? Since both are also based oh. on books. I never read the Legally Blonde book at all. I, I actually was not super aware that there was a book that it was based on. I just thought it came from the hilarious screenwriters. But um, I love the Princess Diary series. Me too. Oh, my God. I was obsessed. I think I've read all of them except for maybe the last one or two. Same. But what's so interesting to me um, is just how different they are, the book series from the yes. movie. But mm-hmm. yet equally charming. Like, the books are such a fun read and hilarious, especially the stark contrast between Julie Andrews as the grandmother and then the grand-mère character in the books who, like, I can just hear her chain smoke horse voice while sipping a sidecar <laughs> I think you can equally well yeah I, I it it does the rare thing of having the movie and the book having enough overlap that it satisfies both but they also can stand alone and have like their own experience because sometimes when they try to hew too closely to the book or it just doesn't really quite come across and I feel like it's one of the few adaptations I actually really enjoy Sure. No, agreed. And I think from a personal uh, connection, I think these are two movies that are definitely like hold a special place with my sister and I like Legally Blonde, especially my sister um, has always kind of in a cute way, like related to that Elwood's character, um, because I think for a lot of time in her life, because she's a petite blonde, much like Reese Witherspoon has always kind of been, you know, thought of as, you know, maybe not being as smart as she actually is. And I'm not insulting her. I just mean that there are assholes out there who perceive her one way and she's actually really fucking smart. And I've always said like in many ways, that's like, I don't know, that movie means so much to me and my sister, especially that's kind of sentimental. But anyway, how about you? 
I know that Legally Blonde inspired a lot of women to go to law school. I, I guess it inspired me to join Mock Trial. I really, I guess I have, I really do have like a soft spot for this movie. It's, I, I remember watching it and feeling not necessarily seen, but it was nice to finally have a movie that wasn't talking down to you. Yeah. That felt very realistic, like that she sort of gets to have it all in some ways, which is that she gets to be respected. She gets the guy that's right for her. She proves everybody wrong. And she actually goes through some shit. Like I, I honestly had forgotten the sexual harassment aspect of it with Victor Garber, which was devastating. I know. (laughs) I can't believe it. Of all older white males. It was so upsetting. I was like, how dare you movie? Why? Don't do this to Victor Garber. Had to watch some episodes of Alias to wash the taste out of my mouth. Like, I couldn't even believe it. <laughs> but I really, especially now, it's it really makes a lot of sense um, rewatching those scenes because that's what takes her out of even wanting to pursue being a lawyer, even though she realizes that she does genuinely like it and she's actually good at it. And it's not just because of like her crappy ex-boyfriend that she's here. It's like she got here all by herself. And it's, I feel like it's so pertinent, especially now to rewatch scenes like that. And I just kind of appreciate like realistic moments like that one, in addition to the turn that happens with Vivian with Selma Blair's character. Like I just kind of found it to always be, uh, I guess as re- relentless, relentlessly optimistic as Reese Witherspoon's character. So I guess I have a soft spot for that movie. And then also of course, princess diaries, cause whose secret fantasy isn't it to like be a surprise princess and have like a great makeover, especially as somebody who had very frizzy curly hair in like middle school and high school, not super curly, but like very frizzy. Um, I would have loved to have had that blowout. I was so envious. <laughs> <laughs> of her hair at the end of that makeover scene. And I felt the same way at the end too. I was like, wow, I really have not grown that much as I thought I have. Cause I'm like, wow, I wish my hair was just that silk and soft. <laughs> uh, seriously. I, I mean, I think, yeah, in both ways, what I love about both those characters is that these, they start out being one way and then we get to see them ultimately like flourish into these two, blossom into these two people who are multidimensional and wonderful and ultimately, you know, stay true to themselves um, as they go through these transformations um, and just, you know, realize that they're more capable of what they were, you know, they thought they were capable of in the beginning. Yeah, I I love that it's like an elevated slumber party movie. Like, of course, it's like a great movie to watch with like your big group of friends. But then you can also do what we're doing and sort of like dissect it and pull apart the things that we can appreciate now, especially as we've talked about on this podcast multiple times of just sort of the reframing of a lot of things that have happened from like the late 90s and early 2000s, which happens to be the pocket of our interest. Well, Let's get into it, and we'll do these in order of which they were released. So we'll start with Legally Blonde that was released on July 13th, 2001. It was directed by Robert Lutick, who will go on to do Monster-in-Law, Win a Date with Tad Hamilton, which I really like, and The Wedding Year, which I think you've seen. That was like a more recent release. Might have. There are just a lot of wedding movies that came out in the last couple of years that they all kind of become a blur in my mind. And I think all of them are on Hulu. Oh, yes. All (laughs) of them. (laughs) It was written by Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith of 10 Things I Hate About You and based on the novel by Amanda Brown. And it was produced by Ben Platt's dad, Mark Platt. 
Legally Blonde became a sleeper hit and went on to make $141 million worldwide, but it does have an egregious 70% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I'm going to blame 2000s sexism on that one. 100%. Too many male critics in the room. Just saying. 70%? Go fuck yourself. This should be... Uh, wait, I'm going to quickly look. What is the audience score? Because sometimes I feel like that's actually more you know, attuned to what is correct. I'm pulling up Princess Diaries as we speak, so we have it ready to go. 87% of people love this movie. That's right. That feels good. 87%. I'm not saying it's yeah. 100. I'm just no. saying it's not a C. No, I'm no, saying no, no, it's no. a yeah. B plus, A minus. Come yeah. on. Would agree. So Amanda Brown published Legally Blonde in 2001, basing it on her real-life experiences as a blonde attending Stanford Law School while being obsessed with fashion and beauty, reading Elle magazine, and frequently clashing with personalities of her peers. Within her first week at Stanford, Amanda felt like she had, uh, deep job voice here, made a terrible mistake. While at a women, <laughs> women of Stanford Law meeting where the agenda for the day was trying to change the name Semester to Ovester. That's a I'm, real line? That's literally what is written. Yes, that I did not make that up. And of course, I mean, have you been to a Stanford anything? Like, of course, they're trying to change <laughs> semester to Ovester. I went to one just bleak fucking tailgate in college. People were like drinking white wine out of like plastic cups and like having like crudite and shit. I was like, look, I'm really used to just shotgunning a natty ice light <laughs> and then pretending that I haven't been drinking to security and then just walking into the student section. So I don't really know what sort of jangled mess this is, but I feel like trying to change the name from semester to Ovester, if I heard, if I overheard that at that tailgate, I would not have been surprised. That's why I was like, mm, yes, tracks <laughs> like from everything I know. Amanda turned the letters she wrote to her friends and parents about her subpar law school experience into a book. She took a community college writing class, put together a manuscript, and shot the book around but was unsuccessful. She later then resubmitted her manuscript, this time on pink paper, which finally got the attention of an agent. This is a direct quote from her Wikipedia page, which I thought was very funny. I wrote it all on pink paper with my pink furry pen. I finally found an agent who picked it up out of a slush pile because it was on pink paper. It went out to studios and publishing houses the same day. And overnight, there was a bidding war. MGM bought it. And after it was rejected by everybody else on the publishing side, which is an exact line, straight line, straight to Princess Diaries, because that was something that came up that she was unable to, Meg Chabot was unable to find a publisher who wanted to buy Princess Diaries. And then they started yep. taking it to studios, which I know you'll get into, but I just found that to be very interesting. Producer Mark Platt instantly understood the power of a character like Elle Woods and brought in the 10 Things I Hate About You screenwriters Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith on board to adapt it. And they spent two days on Stanford's campus like around uh, registration day to kind of get a vibe. Director Robert Ludick is an Australian newcomer who came to Hollywood on the success of his quirky debut short film, Tiziana Buberini, which was on the <laughs> festival circuit. And was added to the project. I had to look up what it was because, like, is this disgusting? And it's, like, about a girl who has, like, a hair lip and then she gets surgery to have it fixed. And, like, I don't know, comedy ensues? <laughs> Unclear. But wow. but, this, but this movie is a great debut for him. And I will forgive this project <laughs> and pretend it's not real. <laughs> So when the studio first greenlit this project, they weren't aware that the film would be structured as progressively as it is and have it be this feel-good women empowerment movie, which, I mean, honestly, if you have the director of Tiziana Buberini, I would assume that as well. 
According to the director, quote, initially they thought it was going to be much more wet T-shirts and boobs. (laughs) Men are just, this is so funny. This is very like, fuck it, make them lesbians. I don't give a shit. Like this vibe (laughs) is so much. Um, Excuse me. They thought it was going to be more wet T-shirts and boobs than it actually turned out to be. In fact, the first script for Legally Blonde was edgy and raunchy, kind of in the same tone as American Pie, which makes sense because they are contemporaries. The murder trial wasn't a part of the plot, and the film ended with Elle getting into a relationship with a professor. Quote, it transformed from nonstop zingers that were very adult in nature to this universal story of overcoming adversity by being oneself, said Smith. When it was decided to change the film's plot, McCullough and Smith finessed some details and added a few characters like Paulette. 10 plus rewrites later and Lord knows how many punch ups and one scrapped cameo from Judge Judy. They were ready to film (laughs) shot around L.A. from October to December in 2000. Ludic basically went from shooting a 10 minute short to a full blown studio comedy. And you just got to love the power of being a white guy sometimes. (laughs) Even though Al famously attends Harvard, it's because it's because USC and Stanford refuse to let producers use the school names. OK, don't you guys like love fucking bribes over there? Like, who are you even kidding? No, don't sully our names with the legally blonde. I love that Harvard is like, yeah, we're fine with that. That works for us. No, like, we're giving, we do not care. We're Harvard. We don't care. And then USC over here, a uh, famous university whose uh, fine graduates or current students include Olivia Jade. Like, let us not let us not forget me. about the sailing coach from Stanford who got fired for like not really taking a bribe, but it looked like he did. So Stanford yeah. is not clean in all of this either. And I've met some pretty questionable people who have gone to Stanford. So like, let's all just keep some perspective here. Like they've both they both have some blood on their hands. Come on now. <laughs> USC did let them shoot on campus there, as well as UCLA, Caltech, and Rose City High School in Pasadena. The iconic bend and snap scene almost didn't even happen. McCullough told Entertainment Weekly, quote, Mark Platt wanted a B-plot for Paulette. And at first we were like, should the store be robbed? I think we spent a week or two trying to figure out what the B-plot and big set piece should be. There were crime plots. We were pitching scene after scene, and it just felt very tonally weird. Later, while brainstorming at a bar in L.A., McCullough came up with the solution. Quote, what if L shows Paulette a move so she can get the UPS guy? On the spur of the moment, Smith invented the move, standing up and demonstrating what would become the bend and snap. Smith explains, quote, it was a spontaneous invention. It was a completely drunken moment in a bar. Ludic later adapted the bend and snap into a full-blown dance number choreographed by the Tony Basil. The what? Film- I know. She choreographed the whole thing and then taught it to everybody. <laughs> Ah, love it. The film originally ended at the courthouse right after Woods won the case, with Elle on the courthouse steps sharing a victory kiss with Emmett. Then, cutting to one year later, into the future, with her and a now blonde Vivian starting their own blonde legal defense club at law school. When the test audience panned the ending, McCall and Smith, along with the rest of the production, agreed the ending was weak. Back to that Entertainment Weekly article I was quoting earlier. Quote, it was just a weak ending, explained screenwriter McCullough. The, the kiss didn't feel right because it was not a rom-com. It wasn't about their relationship. So test audience were saying, we want to see what happens. We want to see her succeed. So that's why we rewrote it for the graduation. Another proposed ending, though, that didn't make the cut was a song and dance number with everyone at the courthouse, which really feels tonally off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I I do remember reading that they reshot that ending like several months later. So everyone's wearing, you'll probably get into this. (laughs) Ultimately, the new ending takes place at graduation, which was filmed at Dulwich College in London. And since since Witherspoon was in that city filming The Importance of Being Earnest at the time, 
She had cut her hair for that film as well as Luke Wilson had shaved his head for the Royal Tannenbaums. So both actors had to wear wigs. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all the behind the scenes that I have about Legally Blonde. Yeah, I'll get into casting a bit. So Reese Witherspoon was almost not cast as Elle Woods. So the people that they were considering at certain points at one point or another were Charlie Theron, Gwyneth Paltrow, Alicia Silverstone, Katherine Heigl, Christina Applegate, Mila Jovovich, and Jennifer Love Hewitt. But it was director Rob Lukatek who really was on board to have Reese Witherspoon play the role because they needed someone who was smart but who could play the character you first think is a ditzy blonde but then turns out to be this incredibly competent and indulgent woman. Reese Witherspoon was the first person to read the script, and it wasn't sent to any other actresses. And casting director Joseph Middleton had also previously worked with her in The Man in the Moon and A Far Off Place. So he really believed that she was right for the role, and then Mark Platt was also on board. So Christina Applegate had turned it down. She hadn't even read the script, but just turned it down. And Mark Platt, at one point, thought maybe Britney Spears should have this role, which just feels very wrong. Um, But Karen McCullough Lutz was just like, yeah, this person, uh, she had just seen the SNL episode with Britney hosting and was just like, yeah, this probably won't work. We love Britney, of course, on this show, but acting, sadly, is not her forte. Um, MGM had to be convinced, though, on Reese Witherspoon. Much like her character in Legally Blonde, where people perceive her as one-dimensional, so was Reese Witherspoon perceived as only being able to be one type of character. In a recent interview on uh, for the Hollywood Reporter's Women in Entertainment issue, apparently a lot of people on the MGM side thought she would be too much of a shrew and seen that way because her last big movie at the time of casting was Election. Although I don't really get this completely because this is also when Cruel Intentions had come out. So she plays like a goody good girl in that movie, but like I she I wouldn't call her shrew in that role. So clearly she had you know dimension. Uh, but she had been turned down for many roles in the after election because she was being typecast as a Tracy Flick type. Her agent told her she had to turn on the sex appeal for her audition for Elle Woods. And Reese Witherspoon in this same um, interview, which of course she made the cover of because she owns her own fucking production company now, said that, quote, my manager finally called and said, you've got to go meet with the studio head because he will not approve you. He thinks you are really your character from election and that you're repellent. And then she was told to dress sexy And she even said in this interview how ridiculous this was. She was like, it's funny to think of all the things we were told to do back then because now you're thinking, oh God, if somebody told my daughter to do that, she'd be like, I really hope you're joking. So she had to go through several rounds of auditions for the part, even meeting with the executives in like a Southern California while putting on a Southern California accent. And she said it was a full room of men who were asking questions about her being in a sorority, even though she had like dropped out of college four years earlier and had never been in a sorority house. Um, I mean, this is like so art, like life imitating art, because that character is so perceived one way and then is, you know, turns out to be brilliant. And just like Reese Witherspoon, who is just like hit after hit is a very smart, competent person. Um, and a great actress. Um, but Lukatik, the director, remembered meeting with Reese Witherspoon to discuss how she would approach the role. Um, and they were trying their best to ensure that she didn't come across as just another, you know, like rich girl driving a Porsche. She had to just 
dress in a certain way that wasn't distracting and off-putting. And this is how you know, like, this is 2001. Um, But really, Witherspoon had to, what was wild to me is just like, I can't imagine anyone else in that role other than Reese Witherspoon. And yet it took so long for her to get cast in that role. But for Paulette Bonifante, Jennifer Coolidge had just come off of a few breakthrough roles in the last two years, playing Stifler's mom in American Pie, and then later Sherry Ann Cabot in Best in Show. The same year Legally Blonde came out, she would reprise her role as Stifler's mom in American Pie 2. And Coolidge, according to the New York Times oral history on the movie that was published this past July, heard rumors that Courtney Love and Kathy and Jimmy were up for the same role, which I can see Kathy and Jimmy in that role. I yeah. cannot see Courtney Love. No, what? Courtney Love? I feel like that changes the energy completely. Completely. That is just, it is a sadder movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I feel like the bend and snap doesn't work if you have Courtney Love. Courtney it works Love. still with Kathy and Jimmy, but not Courtney Love. Absolutely that is wild. not. I know. Whose ideal was that? I mean, the same person who was like, Britney should be MGM, man. MGM. Uh We got to get a star, you hear? (laughs) (laughs) They're still operating by studio (laughs) system, Dave. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As for Vivian Kensington, Kirsten Smith wanted to go for Chloe, Chloe Sevigny, but they weren't able to get her. So they went with Selma Blair, who had just worked with Reese on Cruel Intentions, and the two of them were really good friends in real life. Um, Selma Blair had also just done the Freddie Prince Jr. and Julia Stiles rom-com, Down to You, and Ali Larder, who originally read to play one of the sorority sisters, uh, read the script and really loved the part of Brooke Taylor Wyndham and was later cast in that role. And then for Emmett, uh, Joseph Middleton, the casting director, wanted to go with, you're not going to believe this, Paul Bettany. What? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I read some <laughs> quote where they, the screenwriters kept being like, why can't we get Luke Wilson to read for the Luke Wilson role? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of wild because I'm thinking like literally a year later, if I'm not mistaken, Paul Bettany won an Oscar for a beautiful mind as a support for the supporting <laughs> role. Like, I think you're right. At the very least nominated. <laughs> um, but then luckily everyone convinced Middleton that it should be an American person who gets this role. And it was the screenwriters who suggested Luke Wilson because they had always wanted him the whole time. And I forget how in like early on in his career Luke Wilson was in, just because like Luke Wilson to me is ageless. Like I know he's in a serious now, but he's like thirty. He's permanently thirty-two to me. But <laughs> Luke Wilson was only Fair. like five, 
five years into his acting career. And he had done, obviously, Bottle Rocket, Home Fries, Rushmore, Blue Streak, and Charlie's Angels. And then later on that year would go on to star in the Royal Tenenbaums, as you had mentioned, hence his haircut. That's really all I have on casting. Oh, one do I do have a fun fact actually, and that oh, okay. is that the original. So the two uh, people who play her best friends, the two sorority sisters, um, originally were written out of the sequel. Uh, but Reese Witherspoon loved them so much that she had a part written for them for the sequel, which is not a great movie, but still, I always thought that was really cute. That's nice. Yeah. Well, you're kicking us off for Princess Diaries, so do you want to set yeah, it up? Absolutely. All right. Picture this. San Francisco, 2001. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Don't even get me started on the geography. I am still upset. <laughs> oh, I have a whole thing about that later when Thank we talk God. about locations. <laughs> Yeah, can we have like a, yeah, is it called Location Rage? Is that the section labeled? Kind of, kind of. You, you almost got it right. Uh, Great. So Princess Diaries, which after my Googling, had a 48% score on Rotten Tomatoes. What? But a 60, 68% audience. Which it did not get great reviews from critics back in its, you know, heyday. Which I kind of get because at the time it just didn't have anything else to kind of compare it to. But again, going back to white men critics suck, but they're everywhere in 2001. Well, what about the parent trap? I mean, that like initially kind of even gave them idea, yeah. gave Disney, Big Mouse, the idea to go in the sort of family friendly, yes. I guess, girl geared. Uh, I wouldn't say romantic comedies, like family friendly romance fantasy comedy. So Totally. But uh, they still de- dealt with a lot of pushback from the studio. Hmm. Interesting. Very Interesting. So The Princess Diaries was obviously a Disney movie. It was released in 2001, and the film was directed by Gary Marshall, who, of course, was known for being originally a prolific TV creator, creating Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, which starred as equally iconic of a director's sister, Penny Marshall, and Mork and Mindy. And then later, he would go on to direct Overboard, My Go-To for a Good Cry, Beaches, Pretty Woman, which Princess Diaries references a ton, and then Runaway Bride. And sadly, all those not great holiday themed movies that came out 10 years ago. Mother's Day. Valentine's Day. <laughs> New New Year's Eve? Was that one? I don't I'm I'm I think he directed all of them. I should have probably confirmed this. No, but this I'm is pretty sure. this is better. Us guessing is better. <laughs> Quick plot overview, which I can't really imagine anyone listening to this podcast needs a refresher, but just in case, Mia Thermopolis, played by Anne Hathaway, is an introverted and unpopular high school girl living in San Francisco with her single artist mom, played by Caroline Goodall. One day, Mia's paternal grandmother, played by Julie Andrews, tells her that she is in fact a princess of Genovia, a small European nation, and due to her father's untimely death earlier that year, she is heir to the throne. She must now take princess lessons with her grandmother, ride a limo to school with her grandmother's driver slash right-hand man slash lover, Joe, played by Hector Elizondo, and undergo a princess makeover transition, all while dealing with her overbearing best friend, Lily, played by Heather Matarazzo, her crush on the popular guy in school played Josh played by Eric Von Denton his mean girlfriend who's a bully Lana played by Mandy Moore and later her complicated feelings for her best friends Lily's sensitive musician brother Michael played by Robert Schwartzman while all of this is happening and Mia deals with this newfound identity she has to basically decide whether she wants to accept one day ruling the throne or abdicating all in a day's work for a 16 year old 
So much like you and how this was based on a book that was barely, that almost had no luck getting published, the movie is based off of Meg Cabot's novel, The Princess Diaries, which was published just a year prior to the movie coming out. Few things to note here for those of you who have read the books. Uh, the book would go on to be an 11 book series. Mia Thermopolis lives in New York with her mom instead of San Francisco. And the reason that she's the heir to the Genovian throne is because her father, not because her father dies, but rather because he is unable to have kids anymore. Um, and he's basically a playboy prince. Like, I'm pretty sure it's a vasectomy, if I, don't, if I recall correctly. Um, her grandmother is not at all like Julie Andrews, as we mentioned earlier. She speaks French all the time, habitually drinks sidecars, and doesn't take any bullshit. And Cabot would go on to write this first book, inspired by her own real life, where her mom, in fact, dated her teacher and later married him, which is what happened to Mia in the books and movie. Cabot had the original manuscript rejected 25 to 30 times, according to Cosmopolitan's oral history on the movie that was published this summer. She then decided to work with her agent after all these publisher rejections to set it off to producers in Hollywood. The manuscript would end up landing in Deborah Martin Chase's hands, and she set about adapting it for the screen. Deborah Martin Chase, by the way, is a powerhouse. She ran Denzel Washington's production company, and later, where she was at the time, one making Princess Diaries, Whitney Houston's Brown House production company, which would result in her executive producing the iconic 90s TV movie adaptation of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, and yes. post-Princess Diaries produced The Cheetah Girls, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and several of the American Girl direct-to-video movies, which she's produced under her company Martin Chase Productions, which has struck deals with Disney and later Universal, making her the first African-American female producer to have a major deal or deal at a major studio. Badass. Deborah Martin Chase and Whitney Houston were then set to produce Cab Cabot's book as a movie. And Cabot, at the, in this same article, talks about how she was basically working as a residence hall director at NYU when she got this call that her movie, or sorry, that her manuscript was going to become a movie. And her reaction is just, quote, I was like, sure, yeah, right. Whitney Houston is going to produce a movie based on my book that no one even wants to publish. I mean, it's wild for both these movies. It's absolutely wild how it all went down. I really, I mean, someone's got pink paper. Another person just happens to send it to Whitney Houston's production company. It really is. Just, no one talks about how much luck is involved with literally doing fucking anything creative anything, at, at any point. Anything. Just, we talked. Oh, you can toil away. And I was just going to say you can toil away forever and not have this kind of if some of it really comes down to luck and timing. So I can't these I really can't believe both these manuscripts were rejected so robustly. And then later people were like, you know what? It actually maybe the problem with it is that it's a movie and not a manuscript. Just like, and it's, this is a theme on our podcast. Like, remember Elizabeth Gilbert was like in the rejection letter phase of her career. Yes. And then what, what gets published? Her account at working at a honky tonk bar. <laughs> uh, wild times. So Disney originally greenlit the project with the title of The Princess of Tribeca and chose to revert back to the book's title when they moved the setting from New York to San Francisco. The majority of the film was shot between September and December of 2000, and in regards to all the changes between the books and the movie, Cabot was completely on board and even supported them, I hate to say this, killing off Mia's dad to yep. make it a bigger draw for Julie Andrews to agree to do to it. Marshall, who is known for helming several romantic comedies, agreed to direct because he found the story ideal for families. 
And Cabot didn't have much involvement in the script writing, but was consulted on all the changes and basically signed off on everything. The film screenplay was written by Gina Wenkos, whose name you may remember from our Coyote Ugly episode because she was the first writer of the Coyote Ugly script. And even though the script went through the Kevin Smith rewrite and the Carrie Fisher rewrite, she got the WGA credit for Coyote Ugly. And then she would later go on to write the script for our bad movie night fave, The Perfect Man, and got a story by credit for the Princess Diaries sequel. A few fun facts behind the scenes. Everyone has said this was one of the best movie-making experiences they've been a part of. Deborah Martin Chase said that Julie Andrews was incredibly great to work with, had no ego, and said that there was one day on set where they filmed her scenes because so she could go and Anne Hathaway would just film with her stand-in, but then Julie Andrews, because she's a goddamn gem, brought her cup of tea out and her slippers, which is like the most Julie Andrews thing ever, and was like, no, I'll do the lines with Annie. Also, Julie Andrews helped design the Rose Gardens with the production designer, Maine Burke. And then Anne Hathaway in real life was a very clumsy person. So that scene when she's on the basketball court with Hector Elizondo, she just trips and falls on the bleachers. That was completely unstaged. They just kept the cameras rolling. Also, this I'm sorry pizza that Mia sends to Michael with M&Ms was based on something the screenwriter Gina Wenkos used to eat while she was in the writer's room on a short-lived TV show. And according to a recent interview with her, she still likes that food combination, which sounds interesting to say the least. And this is where we get into our scene location rant, or what do we call it? Location rage. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. First and foremost, while most of the Princess Diaries film was shot in San Francisco, uh, there are two kind of major exceptions, one being the Genovian consulate, which is in LA, and the beach party scene, which was in fact shot in Malibu at Zuma Beach. The crew kind of made it look like Baker Beach, but since this is a Gary Marshall-directed G-rated film, no naked people to really seal the deal from an authenticity <laughs> standpoint. Thank you so much for pointing that out. I not knew something dicks. was off. Yeah, not enough Not enough dicks we didn't want to see. <laughs> oh, God. But and also, that beach sort of looked like the beach from She's All That, and that's Zuma. Did. So there. thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> Had they been made closer to one another, I can just imagine like people are like the teen movies are standing in line to film the beach scene. <laughs> just like, hurry up and clear out. We got clear. Princess Diaries showing up in 30. <laughs> Famous filming locations included in San Francisco included the Musée Mécanique, which at the time was in the basement of the Cliff House and has since been relocated to Fisherman's Wharf. Grove High School, quote unquote, which is actually someone's house in Cow Hollow slash Pseudo Marina, which Marina people, I never know where it starts and stops. So you'll have to correct us on that. Mia, and this is where we get into how the uh, fuck did Mia scooter from Excelsior to Knob Hill to pick up Lily to the Marina every day, weekdays for school? And why is no one worried? Why is no one taking a muni? Why are you scoot? How long? What time do you leave your house? You leave your house at like 5 a.m. to get to school by 8? Like she, I, it makes no sense. It is <laughs> baffling and break, upsetting. To break it down, Mia and Helen, her mom's firehouse loft, is in the Excelsior district. And then Michael and Lily's family apartment is in Knob Hill. And not just like Knob Hill, like right at the top of Knob yeah, yeah, Hill. Yeah. And then... Grove High School, as we mentioned earlier, is in Marina Cow Hollow. So, well, at least it's all downhill from Knob Hill. Literally, <laughs> no, but, oh but not figuratively. But, um, bump. I it. 
it, that was my sticking point. And I guess if that's the worst thing I can say, I mean, once she finally gets in the limo, I'm like, oh, thank fucking God. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Her, that's not economic. Like, no. So much can happen to you. This just seems like a hazard. And her mom's it like, yeah, that's cool. Whatever. Like I'm an artist. Hazard. Just scoot two and a half hours. To, like, I mean, truly, like, how long is that taking her? Is she be faster know. on a fucking bike? I just call child protective services. That's all I have to Once say. Once again, Muni is right there. Muni you see is other right people on there. the Muni pass her by and you're like, girl, what are you doing? And also there's zero traffic on any of these streets, especially going into the marina. Get the fuck out of here immediately. I just have a few final notes about the release um, of this movie and slight legacy, uh, and then we'll get into casting. But Disney was convinced, as I said earlier, this movie wasn't going to do great, despite the parent trap, which like I still don't get, uh, because it was targeted to girls and it was like a G-rated live action film, which again, parent trap, but whatever. Also, though Julie Andrews had star power, she had been you know gone for a while, and Hathaway was unknown. As a result, they released it at the beginning of August, which is a notorious month for sleepers. The movie was released August 3rd, 2001, and was a major success. It would go on to gross over $165 million worldwide. It would spawn a sequel, which is still a fun sequel. Not as good as the first, but it's still a good sequel. And Chris Pine is like, this is where he you know, became Chris Pine. Um, it was released in 2004. And then there's rumors of a possible third movie, which I don't think has been confirmed, but I could be wrong. I thought I had heard that about both movies, about Princess Diaries and about Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde's confirmed. I don't know about Princess Diaries. Yes. Has it been shot yet? That I don't know with the pandemic. Exactly. That's why I'm like, yeah, it was confirmed. But like, mm, how being confirmed and it being done are also two different places to come As from. we've learned on this podcast many <laughs> times. <laughs> Disappointingly. No, I just said, as we've learned on this podcast many times. Right. I mean, we're never getting those Lizzie McGuire episodes. Even when it's shot, it's not guaranteed. There is no guarantee in life. Release the uncut versions, you cowards. (laughs) Give us what we want. We've suffered enough. You've got fucking Steve from Blue's Clues trotting out here telling us about how important we are to him. Like, can you please give us the Lizzie McGuire episodes that you shot? What are you even doing with them? All right. Are we going to move on to casting? Sure. Okay, much like Legally Blonde, they auditioned everyone, according to Deborah Martin Chase. Reese Witherspoon, Scarlett Johansson, January Jones, Emmy Rossum, Juliette Lewis, Liv Tyler, who was a big contender, but then ultimately Gary Marshall was talked out of it by his granddaughters. Alicia Silverstone, Christy Carlson Romano. What what is this age range? Let's let's (laughs) the age range. But she actually couldn't really audition. She ended up not being able to audition because of even Stephen conflicts. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Kate Hudson, Cameron Diaz. I mean, she really meant everyone. Oh, my God. And after not initially being available, they finally got Anne Hathaway to come in to audition. It's widely recognized as her breakout role. She auditioned during a layover in L.A. while traveling to New Zealand for The Other Side of Heaven. Prior to this, Anne Hathaway's only credit was for a short-lived TV show called Get Real. Her natural clumsiness, apparently she was so nervous during her audition with Gary Marshall that she fell out of her chair, impressed him enough, and she was cast based upon the sole audition, no screen test. For Marshall, Anne Hathaway's appearance and performance was very reminiscent to him of Julia Roberts, which, like you said, this comes up a lot. A lot of the actors' interviews talk about how, well, especially the younger actors talk about how influential Pretty Woman was to them, which, like, fucking yikes in some ways, but also I get it. Remember when we used to think like 20 years ago, oh, that's sweet. And now we're like, 
it's tough stuff, you know, just it's it's constantly on TV. Just watch it and you'll be reminded as to why we shouldn't over romanticize pretty woman. I feel like I rewatched Romeo and Michelle because that's on Hulu. Speaking of things that are coming to streaming and the part where they <laughs> where they're quoting where she comes back into the store after oh they like, diss her. Like that's yeah. the appropriate amount of way to like idolize this movie. It's like <laughs> feels so good for her. She gets to come back in there and she get her revenge. <laughs> she can shop. Yay. Anyways, we were saying, as you had mentioned earlier, season producer Deborah Martin Chase not only effectively killed off the father from the book uh, in the translation to the movie, she also managed to lure Julie Andrews out of retirement to accept the role of Queen Clarice. What really ended up sealing the deal was, was Julie Andrews meeting with Gary Marshall, and they immediately hit it off. Known for portraying princesses and nobility throughout her career, Julie Andrews incorporated knowledge she had acquired about European royalty and mannerisms of Britain's royal family into her performance as Mia's regal grandmother. Marshall gave Andrews significant freedom to determine Clarice's portrayal. Princess Diaries was Julie Andrews' first Disney film since Mary Poppins in 1964. Marshall then cast Heather Matarazzo, Heather Matarazzo as Mia's best friend, Lily, after casting director Marsha Ross introduced them to each other. Was this not like Ma- like Heather Matarazzo's like first big role since Welcome to the Dollhouse? Let me look at her IMDb. What she what she may have lacked in IMDb credits though, she made up for in a chemistry test with Anne Hathaway after she auditioned for Marshall. Hathaway believed that the two of them had actually met several times prior at auditions, but Heather never really remembered them. But despite this, they had great on-screen chemistry. I just found that to be like so funny that she's like, I don't know you. I don't have, I have no idea. Well, she was in Scream 3 in 2000, which to me is a big role. So maybe I'm wrong about that. And she was in the adaptation, uh, the TV adaptation of Now and Again. But I guess maybe Prince, The Princess Diaries is maybe like a reintroduction because at this point she's like, She's getting from, you know, just a teenage role into like young adult role. Like I'm going to be in college soon. So maybe it was sort of it worked for her in the sense that it helped to rebrand her as a different type of actor now that she'd grown up a little bit. And she also goes on to be in Save like a few years later with Mandy Moore. So I believe that that's pretty fun. Hector Elizondo as Joe was somewhat of a no-brainer since he's been in all 18 Gary Marshall movies, which when you think about it, he was in Princess D- or he was in uh, Pretty Woman as yeah. the concierge who helps her figure out like dinner forks and soup spoons and shit. When Mandy Moore was cast as Mia's rival, Lana Thomas, the author thought that she was actually going to play Mia and then had to be like, oh, no, no, I'm thrilled that she's just a part of it, period. But I really thought she was going to play Mia. Gary Marshall was also Mandy Moore's first big director film debut, and she credits this movie and Marshall for taking a chance on her and setting her acting career into motion. Robert Schwartzman, a.k.a. Michael, Mia's not Eric Von Denton crush, is also a member of the band Rooney, and he plays a, or I'm sorry, and he plays in the movie band Flypaper. Schwartzman wanted to change his last name in the credits to Cage in honor of his cousin Nicholas Cage. <laughs> He's a Coppola. <laughs> but... The film's promotional material had already been finalized. The Princess Diaries remains his only major film role. Marshall then cast several of his own family members in supporting roles, supporting and minor roles. Kathleen Marshall, his daughter, plays Clarice's secretary, Charlotte Cutaway. And like her last name is an inside joke because they used her to cut away to moments where you want like a reaction for the audience from like a lay person. And so she was Charlotte Cutaway. <laughs> Marshall's wife appears as a ball guest, while his twin granddaughters, Lily and Charlotte, appear as a pair of schoolgirls asking for Mia's autograph. Marshall himself has a brief cameo in the Genovian Independence Day Ball, alongside his sister Penny. 
San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown plays himself in a cameo where he's briefly interviewed upon arriving at the same ball. And that is all the casting behind the scenes fun stuff I have for The Princess Diaries. Is there anything else? Are we forgetting anything? No, other than Lana got coned. (laughs) Even that feels so risky. I do love that. What I thought was really funny is (laughs) Lana's acting like a total dickhead to Mia and the worst insult. Like, she's such a jerk. And look at those two jerk faces over there. It really has big, like, (laughs) Bachelor in Paradise, like, hey, butthead. You're like, you're 40. Like, fucking relax. Don't call adults butthead or jerks. Jesus Christ. (laughs) So other than hoping that the Rotten Tomatoes scores were higher for both of these movies, any parting thoughts before we close out our 20th anniversary tribute to Legally Blonde and and Princess Diaries? No, it's just fun to revisit these. And both available on streaming and they hold up in terms of a rewatch. Very heartwarming, fun. You'll be texting your friend. Anne Hathaway is a comedic genius. You know, all that stuff. She's an underrated national treasure. Oh, I'm so sorry. Annie Hathaway, as she wants to be referred to now. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure you rate and review us. It helps people find the podcast. Obviously, if you want to stay on top of all of our latest episodes, you should just subscribe to this wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, if you like memes and prefer to get your uh, updated podcast episode notices via social media, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod. And we are both still on Twitter somehow. Individually, you can find me at Marg She Wrote. And me at Emily A. Bajan. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.